I hear you and I see you blue flags. <laughs> <laughs> I see your point and I raise you common sense. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Buck. I'm Ian. And this is Gravel Trap F1. The Gravel Trap team descended on Austin, Texas this weekend. We did. It was a thrilling and eye-opening experience. We're going to want to hear all about it. Yes, I'll get into all that. But first, we're going to discuss the technical regulation that got two drivers disqualified. Uh, well, we'll do our best without Christina. Yeah, this will be a little different without our usual hosts here. We got this, Buck. Punch it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome to a very special edition of Gravel Trap F1. You'll probably notice the voices sound unfamiliar uh, from the intro we just did there, but it is post US Grand Prix in Austin, Texas. And our hosts, Christine and Caroline, are traveling back to their home states. Uh, and Caroline actually got sick the day after she got back. She, she was screaming so hard at the race, apparently, she lost her voice and couldn't record. So, we have invited our old friend, Ian Shea, who has graciously agreed to join me and chat about the U.S. Grand Prix. Ian, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. This is awesome. <laughs> but, but what's it been, like two, three, two weeks in a row I've been able to? Yeah, you, it, was, it was two or three weeks ago. You, you filled in for me, and I, I do appreciate that. I was taking my girlfriend on a, on a birthday trip. Um, so let's get right into it. The, the big news, our, our normal format, as I'm sure you're aware, Ian, is, is we have something called the Formation Lab, where, we, where Christina covers some technical elements. Uh, then we have a, a Grand Prix, where we do a little storytelling and background and all of that. And then the checkered flag, which is more of a grab bag, uh, different segments that we do. But to kind of fill in for the, the Formation Lab, or at least talk about something technical, the big news after the race, while we were all on the buses leaving the circuit and headed back into Austin, it came out that both Leclerc and Hamilton were at you know, risk of disqualification for that piece of wood underneath all the cars. What can you tell our listeners about the, the, the purpose of that piece of wood stapled to the bottom of every F1 car? Well, first, I must say we are going to be missing Christina because I will not be able to fill the technical shoes that that woman is left behind. What I know is the plank must be one of my favorite parts of a Formula One car because it is quite honestly a plank of wood. We'll call it super glued, duct taped, drilled. I don't know how they hold this plank onto the bottom of the car, but it's there. And the reason that plank is there with my limited knowledge of this thing is to check the ride heights of the vehicle. How do they check the ride heights of the vehicle? Well, at the beginning of the race, it's a full plank. And at the end of the race, they look at the bottom of it and they measure the difference in the beginning to the end of the race. And if there is a substantial amount of wear or an overage of wear to that plank, then it is believed to be, or it is a fact that the car was running too low and that is illegal because you have a minimum ride height technicality specification rule, whatever you want to call it, in the sport. Just imagine Christina oh, listening boy. to this later. 
<laughs> I'm just gonna have fun with this now. Yeah. So this widget, this this thing that it has been around since the '90s. I looked into it a little bit. What's interesting about these is that it's not just F1. This is a common tool across a lot, of, like you know, other racing series. So you have a World Endurance uh, Championship uses this as well. And it's not uncommon that people get disqualified. Uh, Schumacher, um, circa 2005, maybe, I think, at Spa, got disqualified from a race because of this very same issue. The question I had for you, Ian, uh, fans across the world, as well as the studious Martin Brundle, have both commented that if a sample set of four cars were tested and 50% of them failed, does it not make sense there might be a systemic issue across the grid for that particular race, the bumpiest track that they, they go to each year? Should they have not checked the other cars? Yeah, if you want to look at it statistically, you could then, you could say 20 cars, if out of the 20 cars, right? There's 20 cars, yeah, and they did four. Mm-hmm. So 20%, you could say at least, I'm just throwing numbers. I love to do... Uh, Sorry about that on our podcast. Ooh. I just, to give your listeners a fill-in, I just got my MBA, Ooh. and I like to tell Mike, I know, I like to tell Mike that I'm basically a doctor now, <laughs> and so I'll just <laughs> start saying a bunch of nonsense. So, no, if 50% of the vehicles have failed, then you should check. I mean, that's a pretty significant failure rate, and it's something that's so, it hasn't happened since, what, 2005, from what you looked at? Right. I, I, That's pretty. It was, it was so, so. No, I'm not saying it hasn't happened since. I'm saying that there's some notable instances of it. Um, it's it's yeah. like if anyone. But I mean, dude, it's so right. rare. But if anyone out there, it's is, just so is rare to implying happen. that maybe it was a, you know, somebody with a vendetta against Leclerc or Hamilton, and that's why they chose those cars. So here's something I found on SkySports.com. Of course, being F1, while wood laminate was used when they first introduced the material that teams use these days is actually rather more complex structure featuring glass, reinforced resin. It's fiberglass? The the plank was first mandated on cars in 1994 as part of a number of safety measures introduced midway through that season after the tragic events at Imolo when Ayrton Senna passed away and Roland Ratzinger. They state that the thickness of the plank assembly measured to the normal surface must be 10 millimeters plus 0.2 millimeters and all be uniform when new and then a minimum thickness of nine millimeters at the end of the race so i guess yeah it's not wood it's some kind of laminate glass reinforced resin that's an astounding to from 10 millimeter to nine so you can only lose one millimeter and some of the hits that these cars take that's astounding and what if the the track surface is more abrasive at that track versus another track and it's wearing away quicker well i saw max comparing the coda track to a rally track based off of how rough it was the guy's just so upset after that race man get over it you didn't you didn't have a easy win (laughs) and the fight for it that's 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 the way he should uh, he should like it um yeah i did like Oh, we'll get into that later. So did you see the the photo that Hamilton and Leclerc posted together of themselves sitting on a couch? Yeah. Yep. Well, it, they, they cross-posted it on Instagram, so they collaborated on this one photo of themselves. I thought that was an amazing bit of sportsmanship. That's super funny. <laughs> this weekend, 
there was a, a, a video of um, Gasly lifting Yuki in the air so he could slam dunk a basketball. Didn't see that. And both Alpine and Alpha Tauri like collaborated on that. Like they're listed together on Instagram. And I know it sounds silly, but I think that's a really great thing for fans to see is the teams having fun together. They're all, they're all opponents for those two hours on track, but off track, they're having fun together and making social media posts together. And I, I just think that level of camaraderie is something that's uh, really endearing to see, not to get too softy on you. <laughs> Let's talk the race. Let's right. talk about the U.S. Grand Prix. I was in attendance, and I chose the path of not watching from trackside. I chose the path of sitting in the outside, outdoor amphitheater with a uh, jumbotron and watching the race from there, which meant I got to see all the action, but I could not hear any commentary. When you sent me that photo, I thought you had like speakers and everything. Like it was a movie theater to yourself for Formula it, it One. Was actually, it, was, it was this amphitheater stage that they used for like driver engagements. And they were playing music all day through it. A DJ. And I think the Killers concert was there as well. Um, but during the race, because the broadcast is, has like media rights, they can't broadcast that publicly through the speakers. You have to like tune into a radio station with an actual radio or uh, pay for this headset to wear that where you'll get the commentary. So no, I couldn't hear any commentary. I could only hear the driver's radio that they chose to display and the engineer's radio responses and stuff. So that was really all it. How did you watch the race? Did you use F1 TV, ESPN, multiviewer? F1 TV. And I've been going back and forth between the Sky Sports commentary and the F1 TV commentary. And it's different not here in Crofty all the time, but mm -hmm. F1 TV does a fairly competent job of keeping the same. I mean, it's F1 TV. So mm. they definitely are doing a great job of getting their names out. And I mean, do they have uh, DC doing commentary oh, yeah. for them? which uh -huh. is huge, which is really big. And if you'll listen to Julian Palmer, I think he's a great example of what you need in a racing driver and commentator. He really brings about a good perspective to it, much like Karun does. They both had shorter careers, but still, if you have half a season in Formula One, I think that you deserve to be talking about racing anything because <laughs> it is the pinnacle of motorsport. It really is. So no, I've been really liking F1 TV. I think they do a fan of fantastic job. I've I heard that a lot this weekend. I actually got people rolling their eyes at me when I told them I only listened to the international. They're like, no, you have to listen to the F1 TV. And I love that whole crew. I'm Laura Winter's biggest fan. And uh, she's incredible. She's great. She did all the fan engagement. She was up on stage in front of thousands of people, getting them riled up, ready for the drivers to come out and talk to us. She was stunning and brilliant and did such a great job. The race itself. So watching the race from, and I'm going to skip the whole sprint thing. I don't. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I don't, yeah. why, just one moment on it real quick. Yeah. Why? Why? I'm done with it at this point. It's, it's do something different 
then another qualifying and another race. I think we can do something for the fans to make it fun, but just format and everything, I'm not a fan. There. I, I <laughs> was sitting in a, in a tent at a picnic table, and there was a whole family next to me eating lunch. And I heard them go, oh, we have to get, you know, the sprint shootout starts soon. We have to go. It's the only, it's the only one this weekend, or it's the first one they've ever done here. And they, and I, I, I piped in and interrupted, inserted myself in their conversation and, and pointed out that the shootout's actually just qualifying for the sprint. Like that's, that's, it's, that's what it, it is. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. And she felt like, okay, that's less of a concern for us to get there quickly. Yeah. But it's clear that like, mo- like, if you're a fan who buys a ticket, gets dressed up in Red Bull gear and goes to the racetrack and still don't understand what the sprint is, like they haven't done a good job talking about it to the general public because those kind those kinds of fans clearly can't care enough to show up and they haven't been informed properly. And it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. I don't blame them at all. Uh, but they just didn't understand what it was for. It was, it was a chance to see cars on track, which I think is a waste of time, energy, and, and fuel. That's the thing with me, with the carbon neutral in 2030, along with what seems to be a threat of Formula One becoming Formula E in a way. With that Formula E with an exclamation point, and I know that's a drastic thing to say. That's me going overboard when I say it, but that's the revelations of it. That's what I see. And mm-hmm. when you have more races that means you're using more fuel and you're using more tires. I don't care. I if to keep the tire allotment the same. And we were messing around with quality tires this year to cut down on the amount of tires we're using for next year, yada, yada. Then just keep it at the practices and a quality and then do something. But if you want to be environmentally sustainable, this isn't coinciding with that push in my mind's eye. And also if we're going to be concerned about the health and care of the drivers, like we were due to heat, does it make sense to put their bodies through another qualifying where heart rates get to 180 beats per minute? Do that twice. Oh, and by the way, here's a third of a race. (laughs) (laughs) I I can completely sympathize with that notion. Um, So the race itself, I, I, it started off from my perspective, the turn one, changing of the guard and who went where was so fast it was yes I, I didn't even clock it personally i was keeping an eye on verstappen and hamilton making sure they didn't bump into each other and i didn't even realize how what you know that lando was in front right away and for the rest of the race there were a few assumptions i had early on that i was shocked to find out weren't the case i thought hamilton was going for a one stop that's the way it was started turning near the lap 24's mid-second stint when they extended him on those medium tires, you were thinking that it was possible. I want to say it was McLaren's faux one-stop that made it seem like it was an actual threat, an actual strategy for the race. That was that, that you're talking about when they came on the radio and said, Verstappen, they told Lando that Verstappen's doing a two-stop. We think plan B is the way to go. That was to make everyone think they were going to do a one-stop. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. That it faked me out. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I didn't bother trying to assume what they thought, what plan B was. I was too focused on some of the other guys. And speaking of the other guys, did, did you get a sense on this broadcast that they didn't focus on midfield racing as much? Agreed. 
there was okay. a big focus on the front four. And it was, I mean, understandable because it was the closest that people have consistently been to Max Verstappen, I think, since Canada is the last time we saw that three to six second we're on him a gap and maybe there's something here. But I think they, you know, showed the overtakes where they could show the overtakes and it gave Logan all 30 seconds of broadcast time. But no, it was definitely front four focused. Gotcha. Um, okay, that that's kind of how I perceived it. I, like I said, I, watching it on a Jumbotron is not the comfort of my living room. And there were things I was definitely missing and people walking in front of me sometimes. So yeah. Um, and not hearing the commentary like that, what they say sometimes sticks in your brain, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll catch things that you may not catch and inform you. So I, I, I missed out on a lot of that. Um, for instance, how did Albon do? Cause I feel like I didn't get to really get a sense of what he was doing. Points. He got point. He got a point, two points. Well, I think for Alex Albon with that vehicle that they have, the Williams this year admit that they are quick in a straight line but mm-hmm. from what i've been seeing they definitely have a weakness in like the medium high speed corners and this track has everything that's one of the great things about coda so i think it's a gr- good encouragement that they were at p11 and i think it was great encouragement from logan Sargent to be directly behind his teammate for what seems like the first time all season and he needed to deliver this weekend um which we're happy to see he can needs to continue doing this in order to retain his seat. I mean, that was the talk of the paddock right now. So I think when we're talking about Williams, we're really just asking ourselves, is Logan going to be able to keep that seat? Because the way Albon piloted that vehicle and with Logan behind him this time, yay. But the way Albon has been piloting that vehicle shows that come next year, Williams will be consistent. Like they're going to be a, a thorn in the side of p8 one of those definitely p9 range which is incredible evolvement from where they were in 2018-19 barely not even getting on the track for testing so um albon did great williams did great logan did great um <laughs> aston martin in the words of Lando Norris, they have made that car slower and slower with each upgrade that they bring. And I paraphrase when I say that. He, they, Stroll got lucky. Alonzo with a weird suspension failure outing, something like that. I don't know if it came back. It was floor damage, but I didn't think it was significant enough or didn't see anything on the replays that showed it to be significant enough to be dropping out like that. But having to treat an entire grand prix weekend like it's a test session is not a good sign for aston martin especially with the heavy investment that they've made in the facilities themselves they're going to be definitely looking to spend cash wisely and it's much easier to do i think with a faster car like they had at the beginning of the season than it is with this car that has slid all the way to P5 in the Constructors' Championship from P2 to P5. Yikes. Yeah, uh, motorsport.com did an article uh, talking about how Aston Martin knew it was going to be risky to bring upgrades to the U.S. Uh, Grand Prix. They found something out. They got information. They got data from it. So, you know, it can't yeah, that be... they're slow. 
<laughs> right. right. Whatever that data may be, it, it is what it is. Uh, we need 2024. <laughs> um, on the broadcast, did they, for us, it got really gusty and windy a lot, uh, intermittently throughout the whole race. Was that something that mm-hmm. the commentators were talking about and the team seemed to be trying to uh, account for? Yes, that's affirmative. It was, I forget who on the radio call asked about that. I want to say it was Max talking about the rear end. That was one mm-hmm. instance. And then there was also over the radio Mercedes to Lewis that there was a significant wind increase. And yeah. the cars are, there was a post-race interview with Carlos Sainz on F1 TV with Will Buxton and I forget who else, Pato, and I forget who the third person was. And he said that they're just so incredibly sensitive to the wind that any major pickup like they had during the rest or during the race affects cars. Like when Max locked up his front left going into, I believe, turn nine, the hairpin, if that is turn nine. That was due due to the wind. Okay. Nearing the end, we saw Hamilton closing the gap looked like mm-hmm. given enough laps he might have actually been able to get into a battle with with max there was on the back straight a back marker that gave max drs and lewis you know, lost whatever potential he had in that in that final lap uh the gravel trap social club has a discord server where guys will uh chat during the race and there was a big uproar and discussion there about whether or not backmarkers should give uh, other cars DRS. What is your opinion? No, no, not at all. I thought that same exact thing. It happened with Mick Schumacher and it happened this time around again. I don't think a lap car backmarker should be able to give DRS to the lead vehicle. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't agree with it. Uh, do you think all. it's just lead vehicle or any vehicle? just the lead like just uh any vehicle so any lapped like it you just treat it like it's not even there it's a lapped car now getting past a back marker is very important isn't drs kind of assisting with that to make a to get that back marker out of the way safely and quickly i hear you and i see you blue flags that that's they got the blue flags they got three corners get i see your point and i raise you common sense (laughs) (laughs) okay it's a valid opinion i'm 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 down for that i uh yeah so um how would you rate the u.s grand prix as a as a race overall did you feel like it was a tan Give it a tan. Yeah. A it's from uh, you know Varsity Blues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I gave her a tan. She gave her a tan. <laughs> it's Billy Bob. <laughs> uh so that's what well dude, the track in itself, like they do or the designers did such a elegant job of mirroring certain aspects. Uh, you go through, I mean, the first sector, how is that not maggots and beckets? Right. And then the final sector, how is that not turn eight in Turkey? You go to the first hairpin. Does that not remind you of Malaysia? Mm-hmm. Does that not remind you of China? So I think that the track within itself is 
gold. It's something that as an American fan, like if people say, oh, Miami, oh, Las Vegas, it's like, yeah, well, we got Coda. All right. right. So <laughs> that's and, what I think. Coda has been doing a great job this year of reminding America that they are the only purpose built F1 track in America. They are not a parking lot at a stadium or mm-hmm. a casino uh, runway. So I personally, with the with the U.S. Grand Prix, I I would give it a nine or a ten as well. I think the the racing provided enough tension throughout that I didn't feel like there was a particularly boring section. There was maybe ten laps of the fifty where I was kind of like, Meh. yes. And I think that you have to remember too when you have track temps that are forty degrees Celsius, which is something in Fahrenheit, you are going to have to have a check chess match. Because you can't just go all out with your tires. You're going to burn them up too soon and your two-stop just became a three-stop. So there's a lot of management that you see going on in a race. For example, when you would see Max take a hairpin at turn one even, it was like three, four feet off of the apex and just taking a super wide line out so he doesn't have to put on much steering angle or much lock to save his front tires. So that's the part about Formula One that I think... You just got to live with that second stint is just the worst. (laughs) It really is. And there were parts of as much as I do love Coda, it's still a race. It's not always like you said, there were 10 laps. You're just like, okay, all right. (laughs) Let's see if it's going to be a one stop. I've been to a couple of NASCAR races and it's that long game and figuring out like what, while you watch them all on track, you can kind of start to suss out who's pl- what long game each one of them is playing and uh, stuff yes, like sir. that. So if, if you're into that long-term strategy or ever want to be somebody on a pit wall, uh, that is the stuff to focus on. And it can be fun to sit there. And I'll see the guys, like I said, in a Discord uh, chat for the race weekends. They'll, you'll see all these predictions about who's doing what and what kind of um, strategy we think people are unfolding with. So, yeah. I went to Coda with no real expectations other than going to a large event. Like it's like a festival, you know, and there's racetracks mm-hmm. and race cars in the distance. I'm a podcast producer. You're a podcast producer. We spend every day thinking about this and many hours a week scrutinizing information, editing stuff together. We're obsessed with this. But I have some news for you. I don't think you and I are F1 fans. Oh, no. How come? Here's why. I think I met hundreds of F1 fans this weekend, and I don't feel like I'm one of them. I feel envious of what they do. You do what we do for so long, and you, and you think you're, you're, it surrounds you. But you go there, and you meet these people, and their families, their couples that have been going you know f1 fans for 30 years there's every example of every race and gender and ethnicity and background and everyone there was somebody who loves f1 loves their driver loves their team and once in a blue moon they put on a shirt put on a funny hat grab a flag and they come to the racetrack and they have a ball but then they go back to their life and it's not consuming every day of their of their week and they're it's it's not something they obsess over they get to be a passionate loving fan display that fandom once in a while and then go back to 
you know, the real world, <laughs> as it were. And I'm honestly, I'm, I'm a little envious of it. And I'm just, I was so blown away by some of the stories from these people that uh, I sat down and got a lot of interviews. I wanted to talk to this cute old couple, you know, they had to be in their late seventies, early eighties wearing Ferrari t-shirts. I'm like, I need to know your story. I need to know what brought you here. And my favorite story of everyone I talked to was this father and son I saw sitting up against a fence, drinking beers and smoking a cigar, probably 45 minutes after the race had ended. And I walk up to him and I notice that one of the, the, the father is wearing a Braun GP shirt and it's original. And I, I tap him on the shoulder. I'm like, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, is that a original Braun? Is that a real Braun shirt or is that a reproduction? He's like, oh no, my son here got it for me uh, back in, uh, I don't know, 2000 something in Istanbul, like 2009. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I have to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> and I just sat down. I'm like, tell me everything. What happened here? And the story is that this son was working for some internet or cell phone company and they, and they sent him overseas for business to Turkey. And some coworkers invited him to go see the 2009 Turkish Grand Prix. And he bought his dad a t-shirt and his dad wears it to every race every year at Coda. That's cool. They've gone to Coda every year it's been open. Chiefly because the son then was friends with one of the guys building the track and used to come down to Coda and drive around the circuit before it was finished. That's super cool. And now every year of tradition, the father and son come to Coda for, for the race. And they, after the race, they have a beer and a cigar and they wait for the crowds to die down and they go home. It's just mind blowing, man. That's uh, really incredible. You know, I alluded earlier to a story about a family who didn't know exactly what the sprint shootout was. Mm -hmm. It was those different level of fans, the fans that are probably just, they love their driver or they love their team. They have a t-shirt, they watch on Sundays, they don't even watch qualifying. And when the race comes to town, they spend the extra couple bucks to go. But they don't get much deeper than that. And I do not think that that makes them any less of a fan. In fact, I think that makes them, you know, the the exact kind of fan the sport needs. And it's the exact kind of fan Lewis and other drivers talk about when they're on stage, giving appreciation to the fans. It sounds like sometimes, you know, lip service, like, Oh, you fit, you're, you're, you know, all of you out there, you're the reason we do this, or you bring the energy here that really makes this an exciting weekend. And you, I'm sure somebody can look at that and think it's placating, but I met those people and they're amazing. And they are the reason that the, that, I mean, walking around guys in full orange suits is Max Verstappen fans and a guy with a full purple suit is a Hamilton fan. Like it was just, and they didn't hate each other. They were like, Oh, you look awesome. <laughs> you know, um, I was floored by the whole experience and, and I'm going to put together a whole YouTube video uh, for anyone listening. Uh, I'll be interviewing everyone that you know, I, I met there. It's making me completely rethink what we should be doing here on the show. And like where we want to take the gravel trap social club as a whole, because there's people out there that they're just casual fans and they don't need constant daily, you know, injections of this stuff. Um, they're happy with just what they, they know and they still love it as much as we do. So I'm, I'm going to have to think about that and talk to some of the current members and find out, you know, 
what what we think, but there, there's definitely something we can do to really uh, embrace those individuals. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So um, that wraps it up for us today. Uh, thanks everybody for in, enjoying alternate format of our Gravel Trap F1 podcast. Please go check out Around the Outside, the American F1 podcast with Ian Shea and Mike DuPont. DuPont. Mike DuPont. Mike DuPont uh, with their astute opinions and analysis of the weekly F1 news. Uh, this has been Gravel Trap F1. I am Buck Rogers. And listeners, I am Ian Shea. Thank you for putting up with a voice that's not as lovely as Caroline's or as knowledgeable as Christina's. It's been a blast, Buck. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. I have not heard that. Oh, yeah. Monza, really? You would, I would think Monza well, would maybe be Maybe Monza's not overcrowded, but it wasn't. Okay, Imola was the one that wasn't crowded. Monza was the one that wasn't too expensive. You can get like tickets for like two, two thirty. Oh, okay. So that one you would think would be the most expensive because it's the Temple of Speed. Gosh, would. I would love to go to Monza. I mean, it, it would ultimately probably be cheaper to fly to Italy, uh, go to an F one race there, than go to Miami for sure.